0: All right, welcome to the Pierce podcast, where we give you education in its truest form, and that is the truth. I have two special guests with me today. I am so excited about this. I got two OGs, and I'm not going to introduce them because I don't want to mess anything up. I want them to introduce themselves. So fellas, let the people know who you are.
1: Good, Tyrone.
2: Oh, no, Mr. Hardy, after you, please.
1: Oh, please. All right, we're gonna do this. Okay. Oh yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, my name is David Hardy. I'm from Philadelphia, PA, and I am the executive director of Excellence Schools, PA, which is a uh, school choice advocacy organization. Um, until uh, 2017, I have been the founder and uh, CEO of boys latin of philadelphia uh which at the time was the state's only um all-male charter school it was, i think it was the all it was the only all-male public school in the state um but then uh just recently they chartered a k-8 uh charter school for boys in Pittsburgh or right outside of Pittsburgh. So we're not the only ones, but we're the only one to do high school. And we um, send more black boys to college than any high school in Pennsylvania of any kind, public, charter, private, parochial. Congratulations Um, to that. Thanks. So uh, my current job, I'm, I'm about advocating for Options for kids who need options. And those, quite, quite frankly, aren't the kids that are already in charter schools and in private schools and then high performing public schools. It's about the kids who are caught in catchment areas where there's nothing going on. And we're trying to blow that up. So that's what I'm doing now.
2: And uh, my name is Tyrone Moat, and I'm out of Massachusetts. And I am the managing director of a emerging education research company called Ed Inquiry. And Ed Inquiry as a company is about working, especially with education leaders of color to bring some best practices and new methodologies and a lot of innovative processes that have worked in several different states to school leaders that wanna take the plunge and raise their scores in a short period of time by double digits. Um, I'm an industry guy. I've been in, I was in corporate for about 30 years doing a bunch of different things. I'm out of New York City, born in Manhattan, raised in the Bronx. And my big focus at this point in time is figuring out how to make a stepwise change in the outcome of black and brown kids across this country that are in public school uh, to really change the trajectory that looks so terrible for these children right now and move it to a place where we are where we're controlling the destiny of black and brown kids and by where it's people of color are controlling those outcomes and uh, i'll tell you more about myself as i go on
0: Absolutely. Thank you, fellas, for those introductions that I know that I would have messed up. And I am <laughs> thankful for you guys and, and uh, being on the Edupears podcast. So, Tyrone, first question to you. Sir, you are consumed by numbers.
2: Why? Um, I'm consumed by numbers because that's my training. I'm consumed by numbers because... Uh... <laughs> I'm consumed by numbers because I was always consumed by numbers. When I was a kid, my father, a um, really young kid, my father gave me two toys that I did not play with and then came back uh, and insisted that I do. One was a camera, which today I love, and I love photography, and the other one was a calculator. So a six or a five-year-old getting a calculator was a little unusual, but I sort of took to it and stayed with numbers ever really after that. So I've been around numbers in industry. I've been an analyst for companies like Ticketmaster, TJ Maxx, General Motors. You know, I've I've done significant analysis for for corporate America and now really bringing that to uh, public education. Now, here's the reason why i'm obsessed with it in education There you are know, a lot of people that have a lot of theories about what works and it turns out the black and brown kids look like they're the most studied I, I just can't believe how many studies there are on black and brown kids but the problem is is that the, all of those researchers very few of them have the cultural competence to understand what's going on with that data and right now in education what's desperately needed is data competence for schools, and data competence for parents. Gotcha, okay. So,
0: Mr. Hardy, mm-hmm. you ran a school. Mm-hmm. How, impar- how important was data to your school? Well, Data uh, was how we
1: kind of figured out how we did our jobs and, and what kind of jobs did we do. Um, you have to know how the children are progressing um, and also what the outcomes are. I mean, if you're running a to K-8 school and you don't know how your kids are doing in high school, you really don't know how, how well your program is operating. Same thing for a high school. You're running a high school and you don't know what the outcomes are when they leave your school and go on to some type of postgraduate training, then you really don't know, don't know what you did. Um, this is about building blocks and, and what we've allowed public education to do is uh, have kids come in and they can tell you why they can't teach them, what's wrong with them, you know, all their problems, but they don't have any solutions for them. And I mean, you know, it's kind of like you go to somebody for dating advice and they say, well, you're ugly, your breast stinks, and you ain't got no money. <laughs> They'll tell you how to get a date. <laughs> tell you what's wrong with you. <laughs> I don't want to know that. I want to know how to get a date. These kids want to know how to get educated from where they come from, from the situations that they're in. And if we can't do that, we're not helping them. And to sit around, and you know, one of the things that really galls me, because you said we're going to rile. Here's what you know, I'll, I'll do the first. <laughs> the yes. thing that galls me is people who get like, anointed as saints because they work in an inner city school they could be the lousiest teacher in the world <laughs> but they you know because they're there and they might buy some paper and some coats you know, they've been anointed the sainthood that's not helping anybody i mean that's nice that you want to do that but you get paid to teach them and if you did that they could buy their own coat and get their own paper that's what we're trying to do and and and, and this whole idea um, that we don't have enough black teachers, that should not be a surprise. No. We ran a lot of black teachers out of this business, and we're not preparing kids anywhere near well enough to be teachers. So, I mean, the fact that we're sitting here in this, this market, this drought in the market, the reason why is we kind of set that drought up.
2: But I gotta, that's one reason why the data is so important, because without the data you really do not know where kids are and you don't know what progress you're making so how and, and i guess i would ask you get on a plane and let's not worry about data you know let's not worry about data in all the other aspects of our life except education because how many how many people would get on a plane where the pilot says you know what my all my cockpit controls are out but everybody's sitting in the back (laughs) we, (laughs) we 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 may get there i think we're heading to chicago but i can't really tell right how many nobody would get on that plane the other thing is is that no pilot which is the key would ever fly that plane without data and what we've got is we have school leaders who, and, and you know, I take my hat off to both teachers and school leaders, but we have so many school leaders who were trained not to understand data that now, after they've read a book like Leverage Leadership, everybody's data driven instruction, but nobody knows what it means. So if you go to the, the, the big networks, you'll find out that they've got a central data group except that our freestanding charter schools don't have it. Our freestanding districts don't have it. Some of the smaller union shops don't have it. And because of that, our kids are being left behind. So data to me is, yes, it's important, numbers important, both for accountability, but also in order to help in terms of directing what that instruction needs to be in order to meet the best need, the needs of the child.
0: Now you have been very critical of black and brown school leaders, uh, in terms of. (laughs) Whoops, camera's coming off. (laughs) Yeah, I turned the camera. In terms of, in terms of them not doing. Yeah, yeah. In terms of them not doing enough, so I want you to expand on that. Like, what 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 criticism do you have for us black and brown school leaders? I think he's talking about you. Oh, you (laughs) mean? Hey. I'm going to take the brunt of it. I'm okay with it.
2: Yeah. So, so I, uh, I, how do I put it?
0: Don't it's put not, it anyway. Just speak on it.
2: It's, it's not that I have, it, it's not so much criticism, Mr. Ankrum. It ain't, it's not criticism. What it is, is I look at the data and I can see the trajectory of where everything is going. This country right now, 80% of the fourth grade 80% of the fourth grade black kids can't read. You take a look at incarceration rates, you can see what the incarceration curve looked like. Just you know, I'm on Twitter, Go. I posted some data last night. So when I look at the fact that incarceration rates have, go, have gone up, when I take a look at the fact that 80 percent of the kids can't read, and I take a look at, at the 600 billion dollars that's being spent on public education on top of the $4-point-something something billion that was spent in race to the top. I would expect more than 80% of our kids can read. So what I'm looking now for in school leaders of color that finally get the chance to do something for their communities, I'm looking for them to be innovative, not to be following. I'm not looking for school leaders of color to be incrementalist because if you're incrementalist, we will never catch up. They've got to be... And revolutionary is not the right word because it sounds like you got to be radical. No, you just have to be smart and you have to be ready to leapfrog to the top of the, of the chain, not follow everybody else. And there are very, very few Black leaders that have the boards or the school boards or feel comfortable enough in their positions in order to make innovation. But I'm telling you, Mr. Engram, I don't think there's any school in this country that if a school leader and the right people came together to take a look at that school within a year, you couldn't get double-digit gains uh, in math and ELA.
0: So, Mr. Hardy, what's your take on on, on Black and, and, and brown school leaders?
1: Well, you know, um, I think that it's a tough job. I get that. <laughs> but if you take on this job, you're taking on... A, a responsibility to the community that they take pretty seriously. When you're a black school leader, you find that, or, or, let, or a brown school leader, you find that the community you serve really depends on you. They think that you're gonna be honest with them. They think that you're gonna have their kids' best interests at heart. And when you don't, it's a huge disappointment. So, I mean, it, it's a job that you have to step up to. It's not easy. Uh, it, it, it's very time consuming and and it has its disappointments and you, you're going to have to live with those too. But the fact is, is that these schools are not going to get better bringing in people into the community who don't understand the community and, and that doesn't matter who they are. Look, our last two superintendents here in Philadelphia, are the current one and the last one were African-American. They didn't seem to know the community as any better than the the two white guys that preceded them, because they're not from here and they never learned to to operate in this city and in uh, especially in the spaces where they were most needed. Um, they couldn't get the teachers to change the way they do things exactly. in those in those neighborhoods, and that's a big thing. Because if you can't if you go into a neighborhood where they have 20, 30, 40 years of failing schools and you come in there and expect the school day to be the same and all the classes to be the same, you're crazy. <laughs> Things have to radically change. People's behavior has to change. And in order to do that, you got to have their trust and their confidence and you have to deliver. Because if you don't deliver, you're going to lose their trust and confidence. So so yeah, I think it's a hard job. And I think yeah, there's some people getting away with kind of you know, playing the card and saying, you know, I'm here for you, you know, okay, you can try that for a while, but that's really not helping kids. And that's what we should be doing.
0: So a big ticket item now is, uh, is this animus towards charter schools and this animus towards CMOs kind of for the reason that you just talked about. Right. Mm -hmm. And so like, what, what can uh, the CMOs do better in order to relate to the communities in which they service?
1: Well, the CMOs should have, look, at Boys Latin, I always had a plan. It's, you know, because when I started out, I had a whole lot of TFA teachers, mostly white teachers. And they said, like, you know, what is their plan to get more African, going to hire more African American teachers? And I said, I'm playing the long game. Because the long game is these guys should be able to graduate from here, go to college, graduate from college, and a portion of them should be able to come back here and teach here. And I think that's very important. And uh, you know, I don't, I don't think we're anywhere near uh, reaching that goal yet, but I think we're on our way. The school is on its way to doing that. And I think that everybody needs to think like that. If you want Black teachers, you got to create some Black teachers. And you got to create an environment where Black teachers can thrive and be happy and, and, and progress and get the experiences they want to be able to fulfill their career desires. That's the kind of thing you have to do. And uh, look, in in business, um, when they wanted to to, uh, increase diversity, they have a program for it. And they go out and they scout for these people and they court these people and they bring them in and they pay them commensurate with somebody that you really want. And that's how you get people. And look, if they say that it's important to have black people in these schools teaching, then they better go out and make a concerted effort to bring them in. Kip just, Kip just said they, they have 57% of their new teachers are, are, are of color. That's great. Okay? That means that they're paying attention to it. But they just can't be of color. They have to, be, they have to deliver. And, and Kip's job is to make sure that they're delivering.
2: I think that's an important point. I really do. i uh, especially up here in Massachusetts. Black, black students are nine percent of the population. I've been and I've uh, was uh, working in one school for six years on the board of trustees for that school, and uh, it was a school where they were serving uh, almost a um, ninety percent, oh, yeah, ninety to ninety-five percent students of color, but the entire teaching staff was not. And as a board member, I said, well, let's we have to do something to get diversity. Well, they did something to get diversity. What they basically did was they found a way to to fulfill the board mandate to get more uh, black teachers or TAs in, but they created such a toxic environment for them that they couldn't stay. And then when they left, they came back and said, well, you know, we can't keep them and they don't stay. So they basically created a self-fulfilling prophecy of failure. So it can't just be, let's do diversity, because then that's, that don't, that's just doesn't make any sense. Right. And most of the diversity programs are not necessarily culturally driven by Black people. So you don't have a situation where the environment is one where Black people can feel safe. They feel like a raisin in a bowl of rice. And that's not, that's not diversity mm-hmm. in my mind. But going back to your question about CMOs, Mr. Ankrum, one of the things that I think that we really need to look at across the board is I think we, we need to, and, and, and you know David talked about this, about playing the long game. The long game in education, not, and this is not reflective of what David was saying, but in many, in, for many people, the long game in education is let's get them through whatever our graduation point is. Yes. <laughs> All right. We are a K-8. Let's get them to eighth grade we're a 9-12, let's get them to high school and we're gonna, and let's get them through high school. We're gonna use college metrics <clears throat> to tell us that we've done a good job or we're gonna use graduation rates to tell us we've done a good job. The long game has to change for education leaders of color that are innovative and ready to take a big step forward. And the long game has to be about how do we create The next set of entrepreneurs, black entrepreneurs for this country. Because if you take a look at what's going on in business circles, most people hire people that look like them. So if we don't have a lot of business people running businesses that look like us, then we're not gonna get the jobs we need, which is gonna create the economies we need, which is gonna help the communities we need, which is gonna then Create a demand for the kids we're educating. So we can't just say it's about education. It's about creating a group of future leaders that can help to lead the change necessary for these communities.
1: The, so, other, part, the other part of that is that in order to create entrepreneurs, you have to have a capitalist environment. And and for people, you know, there's too much push. Any any business. You know, if you don't like the business, it's not because the business is bad. It's the people that are running it are bad. That doesn't mean business is bad. All the stuff we have, the good stuff we have, is because somebody started a business and provided that service or that product to us. And we have to understand how that works. Our kids have to understand how that works. And they can't look at that as some evil place for them to to avoid. They need to get into the marketplace because – once you get in, you see, you see people who get in and are successful, it works. And it doesn't matter what you look like if your product works. So exactly. we, need to, we need to be a little more positive about what the prospects are for these children and, 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 and uh, expose them to different jobs, different career opportunities, different industries,
2: so they can see what's possible. Uh-oh, now you're, now you're going to, I hope Mr. Hankroom just closes his ears for one second. <laughs> okay. I just, because you're going to now hit where when he says I'm criticizing education leaders of color, I'm not. I'm asking them to move beyond where they are. Because to David's point, to Mr. Hardy's point, in order for educators to create that workforce of tomorrow, they have to know what that tomorrow looks like, which means they have to come out of the education bubble, have some way of understanding what's outside of the education bubble, what's outside of the school building, and be able to expose their children to that as well. And there are very few. Uh, Let me let me stop there.
0: Why are you stopping?
2: <laughs> <laughs> because, because well, uh, David, please pick it up. <laughs>
1: I'll bail you out.
2: <laughs> no, I mean,
1: I think, I think, I think what Tyrone is saying is that look, it's not just about having a school where kids come every day and do their homework and go to recess and eat lunch and go home, and you know you do it again the next day. It's, there's there's the ultimate goal that you should be aware of for your children and in order to know what that ultimate goal is you need to know all the components that that are are uh, in that in that long-term goal so you need to know what the economy is in your city you need to know what the hot jobs are in your exactly city, what the big industries are in your city What industries are dying in your city? You know, um, one of the things that really kills me, and I know people are gonna be mad at me about this, but people wanting to have uh, beauty culture (laughs) invoke tech schools. They wanna have, you know, teach you beauty culture. Okay? I don't see that as a long term uh, family sustaining job. If you're a person who knows beauty culture, and you know business and you can set up a business where you have enough customers to make a living, and, you know, run a shop and pay your bills. That's one thing, but you don't learn that in a Votech thing. You just learn a couple of hairstyles. That is not creating an entrepreneur. That's creating a path of destruction. That's <laughs> sending you off a, a, a to get sending you on a long walk off a short. Yeah. Yeah.
0: They're going to so, be, they are going to be mad with you.
1: <laughs> Yeah, I, I'm sorry, but that's the way it is. Uh, and, and, and and there's other, I mean, that's not the only one. There's other ones like that. But, but I mean, the point here is that they have to be good jobs. They have to be family-sustaining yeah. jobs. Exactly. And somebody out to be a to, to be a busboy, you know, you're not in the restaurant business when you're a busboy. <laughs> I'm sorry.
2: Uh-huh. You know,
1: you, you're in the restaurant business when you own the business or when you're the maitre d', that's you right. know, the chef. That's, that's in the restaurant business. Everybody else is kind of working for the restaurant. And, and so these, these jobs that they have, and, and in the big city like Philadelphia or in New Orleans or New York City or LA, Chicago, they have a great big uh, tourist and hospitality industry. So they always need people, need bodies going through there. But that's not, a, that's not the end, that's not the destination. You might want to pass through one of those jobs on your way to something else, but that is not the end game. But Too the, many times that's all the kids get out of these schools.
2: That's and all the right. problem, hold on one second, Mr. Andrew, because I'm gonna turn the tables in one second. But the problem, David, is is that if the educators in that community are living in so tightly in a bubble that they don't see all of those other jobs, then they can't expose the kids to it. So, um, so I understand, Mr. Uh, this is Mr. Ankrum's program, and I hope he has a cut button there that he can just, you, know,
0: <laughs> <No cut. laughs> you can just
2: press the button and say, you know, look, uh, look this is my show, but I'm going to ask him a question. So you're an education leader of color, a, a young man too, you know, and you've uh, been through a few different things. So why aren't there more... Risk takers in your space. So what
0: I'm going to say is this: you guys come on my show and you bully me. I feel like every <laughs> I, feel like, I feel like every guest that I've had on my show just bullies me. <laughs> so you, you know, I, I, here's what I here's what I think. I think that people don't take enough risks uh, in this space because of the consequences of what happens when you take that risk and then it yeah. fails. Right? right. So it's like you can't really pick yourself up behind a behind a failure, you know, because in, in the charter school space, at least if you fail and if you fail to a high degree, you get your school closed down. And so then you got to worry about the community in which you service. You got to worry about disappointing those kids and you got to worry about disappointing those families. So it's better to play the safe side than it is for your school to get shut down. But I mean, you know, I, I feel like I take risks. I feel like I take calculated risks, though, you know, in terms mm-hmm. of like what we're trying to do. Um, so,
2: does, so will those calculated Well, there's a difference, risks-
1: you know, hold on a second. There's a difference between taking risks and being reckless. Yes. You, know? you don't yes. want to be reckless, because you yes. got something to maintain. But yeah, taking I'm- the risk, all risks should be calculated. You don't want to take a risk if you can calculate. Oh, I want to jump off this cliff and see what happens. I don't
0: want to do that. Oh man, I got I got two oracles on my show. I'm just trying to learn. I you know I wasn't even thinking about uh, am I going to be a participant, but I'm glad you asked me that question.
2: But the thing is, on my screen, I see myself on one side, I see Mr. Hardy on another. You're in the middle, so you're the focus here. And also, we you know we're going out. It's it's your generation that's going to be the salvation. For our community. So fact. so the fact of the matter is, is that if we can't get your generation to realize that playing it safe is great. And I can understand it. You know, I'm a, I'm an old guy as a single father. My daughter's <laughs> older at this point in time. I can probably take a lot of risk, which I have at this point trying to fix education. And I can understand somebody has got four or five kids and they got to, you know, they got to figure out how to pay the bills and everything else. But there's a whole community, 80% of our fourth graders can't read. If we fix now, that, just,
0: just for clarification. Now, are you talking about fourth grade as a whole, white and black, or are you talking about black fourth graders?
2: Black fourth graders. Okay, all right. And this comes out of the, and all any data that anybody wants, they can just go to my website or follow me on Twitter, and you'll have all that information. I'll give you whatever data you want. But the fact of the matter is, if 80% of our kids can't read, and the school leaders of color are playing it safe so that we're gonna get a little bit of growth every year, then I'll be, it's not only, I mean, I'll be long gone soon anyway. It's like, you'll be long gone before anybody has a chance of catching up. You have to find, if you want to do something about this, you have to find school leaders, black and brown, that are willing to take, to take risk measured risk and willing to innovate and have the safety in their boards and safety in if you're a superintendent in in a district school you have the safety of your school board to figure out a way that you can get double digit growth year after year after year after year in order for you to catch up any other way this is just, a, this is, education is about paying the educators, not educating those that need education.
1: Okay, so now you bring up another point, Uh oh. because any, <laughs> any superintendent, black or white, trying to do that runs into the union. Absolutely. The union wants everybody to work the same hours, doing the same thing for the same amount of time, and that is not the way to change uh, uh it years, does not. Right. decades of, of, of failure right you got to change You extended day i don't i don't see how you don't have an extended day option in every neighborhood in america an extended day is is, is what kids need they need a, a longer connection to the school under adult supervision doing school related activities um i i actually i was I was talking with uh, Tyrone last week. I sent him this article that this guy wrote down here about that, about the fact that if you go to private school, you're spending about 70, 80 hours a week in school-related stuff because you go to school from uh, 8 to 4, you're in extracurriculars from 4 to 6, then you go do three hours worth of homework every night. I mean, that's a, that's a pretty serious commitment to school versus somebody who goes to a neighborhood high school in Philly you go from 8 to 2.30. You only go four days a week, and you don't do any homework or have any extracurricular activities, so your commitment to school is about 23 hours. 23 hours, 80 hours, that's a big difference.
2: Big difference.
1: And, 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 and in order to have those longer days and those multiple activities, you got to change the way the schools organized, and that means that people aren't living the same kind of ways that they used to. Teaching used to be, you work to eight to four, eight to three, you go home, you're good. It's not like that anymore. You got to work, <laughs> you know. I always say, if you're afraid to visit this student's house at eight o'clock at night, you're teaching in the wrong neighborhood. You should be teaching there. You need, you need to be able to go knock on somebody's door at eight o'clock at night when you know their parent is home if you need to get in touch with that parent. That's, that's the kind of commitment that's the kind of aggressiveness in teaching that we need to see in our communities or else, like Tyrone said, you just kind of kicking the can down the road It never gets any better.
0: Never. So that's, that's what kind of teacher I was in Baltimore city. So in Baltimore mm-hmm. city, man, listen, if you, you acted out of my class, I know what time your parents are getting home, mm-hmm. coming to eat your food to make sure that you get consequences so that when you come in school the next day, you're going to be able to talk to your friends. But Mr. Ankle was at my house last night.
1: Yep hey look and once <laughs> they start telling people that boy you are a legend <laughs> yes, <laughs> sir.
2: Yes, sir.
1: The-
2: <laughs> but david you raised another point you raised two two points one of them is we need to do something and we need to recognize that teacher training has not worked the we we, we just have to you know everybody has to come to grips with the fact that all of these investments, the teacher training, it needs radical change, not incremental change, because I really believe that the best, um, I I work with a a school that's black-led in, one of the schools I work with is black-led in Massachusetts. That is the best training ground for white teachers. I can't tell you Mm -hmm. how much. And the, and the, the teachers there tell me that they are getting training that they have never gotten. The expectations, I've had some teachers who, who even on camera in interviews say, I couldn't believe how much my expectations have changed since I've been here. How much, how much better a teacher I've become because you, this black leadership has pushed me to a point where I would not have been pushed and, my, and has set my expectations at a level that I would not have had them set. So we really have to focus on on arming our teachers. One one other thing, my I was telling David last week, my mother was a union organizer in New York, right? She she was my mother was made in New York. She organized domestic workers in New York into the eleven ninety nine union, so that they were had protection for pay. They weren't getting raped anymore. All the rest of it. Anybody who comes to me and says I'm I'm anti union, they're crazy. But the bottom line is, my mother organized to give those families a better life. I am an optimist. We're not going to change this thing a little light, as Mr. Almecki says, eating around the edges little bit at a time. We have to do something that is going to change the lives of these district schools, too. So I think one of the things we may begin to see is union leadership in some of these districts become a little more aware of the fact that maybe I can make these stepwise changes and maybe I can beat that charter down that block. Maybe I can do it and I can organize my people to do it in such a way that I make it better for my teachers, I make it better for my students, I make it better for my families and the outcome is in the numbers that they show. I, Man, I'd love yeah, to see that that's never day. gonna happen.
0: Man, what? I'd love to see that day, but
1: <laughs> <laughs> the union, look, the union spent, I just read this, this one, the California union spent almost a million dollars a month fighting charters this year. So far, it, it, I think it was till June, they spent like four and, and some serious change, maybe four and a half million dollars um, in six months fighting charters. That's not teacher development. That's not looking at, at student issues. That has nothing to do with education at all. This is all about keeping jobs, and that's all their function is. And that's why, when they have union people speaking for public education, it's well, a I joke.
2: That doesn't and, make sense. You know, yeah. that, right? That doesn't make sense. <laughs> but the, but no, the no. Fact, stick there, stay there, stay there. <laughs> no, but that doesn't that doesn't make sense because and, and I there's a, a person that uh, you all know, Mr. Dr. Cole who basically says all the time, look, black families, black and brown families, you're on your own. And you are on don't your plug,
0: own. Don't plug cold on my show.
2: And I had to do it. I had to do it. I had to do it just, just, just so I get a little reaction. you know. But, oh but the thing is, the reason why I say that is, is that you are on your own there's no question 80% of black fourth graders can't read obviously you are on your own my other tagline is send the lifeboats because this is uh, this is not going to change wait
0: no i want i want to set that up right because like you say that all the time you're like you're sending the lifeboats sending the lifeboats so give us like the context of like where that came from and kind of like where you're going with it
2: you know uh That's a good question, and I hate to answer it. (laughs) I do. Because every time I have to answer that question, I have to look at the reality of what the data is telling me. Mm -hmm. And if I look at the reality of what the data is telling me, and if I also look at the reality of where I have found schools. I worked in New Orleans for six years. I'm out of New York City. I went to school in New York City. I'm here in Massachusetts. I worked in, I mean, I've been in all different, I've been in different schools. I know education a little bit. When I look at where it's going, if it doesn't change radically, then can somebody tell me what is the future for these children that are going to be left behind a world that's becoming increasingly technological and a world where resources are becoming scarcer and scarcer. This is all about finding a way to create competitive, a a competitive workforce. My fear is that, that many of these kids have been written off as they're not gonna participate anyway, so therefore we don't need to educate them, but we can make money off of them by giving them education, even though it's not gonna end up someplace. That has to change. But the problem is, is that I don't see it changing because I'm not finding the education leaders of color that are gonna change it. I don't see it changing because yes, you've got this union debate going on. I don't see it changing because the charter sector is so small. And if I don't see it changing, I mean, you know, I've been around decades at this point in time. Then between now and the time when I pass on to the next, if it doesn't change, then all we got to do is send lifeboats and see how many babies we can rescue. And so the tragedy of every time I make that statement, you see me make that statement, it's almost me throwing my hands up in the air saying, this date is too devastating for me to. Well, well I'm going to tell you, um, I, Howard, Howard
1: Fuller um, has an interesting uh, concept for this thing. And what he says is, look, there are people who are trying to fix public education and we wish them well i hope they get it fixed but until then we need to grab every kid we can today and put them in the best situation we can today
2: 100% okay,
1: okay? and it's kind of like the same thing like harriet tubman was against the institution of slavery and she wanted people to work to abolish it but until it was abolished <laughs> She was going to lead as many slaves as she could out of slavery one at a time or five at a time or the few that they could until the big day came. And the fact is, waiting for the big day, she got a lot of people out of slavery. Same way with public education. Until we start getting more kids out and into good situations, we're not going to see public education in any mood to to make any radical changes. If you look at a movie about any industry in the 1960s and you look at that industry today, it looks nothing like it did in 1960. With one exception, education looks the same way. A classroom looks the same in 2019 as it did in 1960. Yeah, they got it. You know, maybe the buildings look a little newer. Maybe the, you know, they have a smart board instead of a blackboard. But the processes and the whole policies and the way things get done haven't really changed that much. The structure of the day hasn't changed. The classes haven't changed that much. So and certainly uh, what it takes to get the job done, the, the training and the preparation to get the job done has not changed. And nothing works the same as it did in 1960. So somebody needs to tell that to the educational community.
2: But but to Mr. Ankrum, your point, though, too, I am not going to give up, and I, I hear you say it, I am not going to give up on the fact that there's going to be some enlightened union leadership someplace that's going to realize that if they turn their numbers around that they're going to make a big difference. I, I, at the same way I'm not going to give up on the notion that there are innovative education leaders of color that could take some of these best practices and see stepwise results in one year. I'm not going to give up on I, I, The reason I can't give up on any of those things is because I have to sleep at night. Well, so, here's the deal. Here's the deal. There is somebody. There was somebody like that. George Parker was like that. Mm-hmm. The head
1: of the DC Teachers Union. He actually did some very innovative things. You know what they did? Get <laughs> rid of him. Yeah. <laughs> You know, I mean, I, I, I do agree that there are people in any, seg- in any segment of this, of this industry that can be inviting, and they can want to do it. But it's more than a notion and, and to push people to do things in, in education seems to be a Herculean, Herculean task. I mean, any little change seems to take a huge amount of effort.
2: And and part of the problem too with that is that in education, the one thing you don't want to say is "I don't know" or "I need to know more," and right. that, that's part of the problem. I, right? The, I hear I have so many leaders. I can't tell you. I I've seen. Oh, are you? You know, we we read leverage leadership. We're data driven. Oh well, let me take a look at what you're doing. All right, bring the girl in. Let's see what she's got. And and I see some spreadsheet. Where, Or I see a stack of reports that nobody can read that's produced by these software vendors that don't care about anything except selling you the software, and half the people can't understand how to translate what they've got into instructional practice. So they spent all the money on doing all this stuff, but the end result is they got a stack of reports, a bunch of confused teachers, and not one movement in terms of progress for their students.
1: You know, I went and visited, uh, what was it called, the River, Riverdale Street School in New York. You might know this guy, um, Ray, uh, Barone Kennedy, ran this school in Queens. And he had a data room that was, it was just on, <laughs> oh, Lord, it yeah. was on the money, right? But then here's the deal. Then he takes us to the classroom. And each little kid has this little strip of white paper on the front, of, on the top of their desk. And what it is is every time they take a benchmark they write that thing in themselves they're tracking their progress in themselves so you know it's very important to have the teachers and the administrators engaged in the data and you know to, to affect instruction and all that kind of stuff but man when you got the kids engaged in the numbers nothing's better than that that's when how we are want, when they want to get better that's that's what school is about. All you have to do, if you got kids who beat their yesterday's performance every day, you yeah. got a school that's making progress. Yeah. <laughs>
0: sure. my, my, da- my daughter's at my school, she's in kindergarten. Uh-huh. And you go up to her and you say, hey, what's your reading level?
1: Level M. I'm like, uh-huh. yeah, exactly. They're proud of that stuff. They're exactly. proud of that stuff, man. Well, and this whole idea that, you know, black kids don't respect school, Get not give me there. I, I don't even want to hear that stuff. And, what they don't respect is you. When they come in your school and mess up, that's not about them not respecting the school. That's them seeing what you got and going, this ain't happening.
0: That's what so, it is. So I've made an observation, right? And Tyrone, you're going to absolutely hate this observation, <laughs> right? right? Because, you know I, I, I know, I know this is a one and done for you, but um. y'all's chemistry is amazing, and I would love – to have you guys as perennial guests on my show, or, 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 listen to this, listen to this. The the, the David and Tyrone podcast, I'm telling you, man, this would no, no, impact, no, no, no. this would impact, the, the, you know, oh, man. No, grumpy no, no. Grumpy old man. Yeah, grumpy.
2: <laughs> but I, I got I gotta to say something to that point. I, and this is, I'm probably one and done, and then when, when five of these come out, you'll play that back for me. But the thing is, One of the bigger problems that we also have right now within the concept of education is the fact that in order for you to set policy in education, you generally have to have gone through the ranks, have a a, Ph.D. or an Ed.D. in education. Do what, do what you know your friend that the name not to be mentioned has done, right? <laughs> <laughs> you have to go through all these steps, except that we're not doing that. We can't even get out of third grade, so we're not getting those big credentials. Mm-mm. So, Mr. Hardy here has been in many different sectors, and then took it on himself to build the school. I've been 30 years in business. Now, uh, almost 10, 11 years in education, turned around how many schools at this point in time, except that when I walk into the room, because I don't have an education education doctorate behind me, and the room is filled uh, with uh, let me, people, let me, nobody oh, that wait, wait, looks whoa, like whoa. Me.
0: Let me. Let me stop you right there. You may not have an education doctorate, but tell us where that MBA is from, sir.
2: Yeah, I mean, I went to a good school. what's that school, (laughs) sir? I went to Columbia for my master's degree. So that that trumps pretty much any education doctorate. Uh, The thing is, the funniest thing, Greg, I'm glad you said that. So in in business, which is where I was, you know, I followed the money, right? In business, when you come out and you say, I want to be in business, what degree do you get? You get an MBA. Yes, sir. And then once you got an MBA, you know what you're doing right after that? you're making money for somebody, and they're paying you for it. So the terminal degree in business is an MBA. You want a PhD, it means you want to go to a university and teach. Right. In education, the more degrees you have, the more you go up pay scale. So that means that in order for you to be more respected, you have to get more degrees, not more knowledge or more experience, just more degrees. So you know, in education, I'm telling you, man, it just, it needs a structural change, but it needs people like Mr. Hardy here that have the lived experience, that understand what it is to be in those communities, that have been around schools, that understand it, and people need to start listening to the to, to black men that have been out here instead of me walking into a room where people tell me you know what I want you to be quiet because that woman in the front who's got a Ph.D. who's got a Ph.D. from this university someplace in Massachusetts is going to tell me how we educate black boys and I'm sitting there saying let me let me see I was born in Manhattan lived in the South Bronx went to Bronx High School of Science end up at Columbia have a great career for thirty years and now trying to help kids but nobody wants to listen to me, but will listen to her, something's definitely wrong, which is the reason I go back to you, Mr. Ankrum, and say, what's going on with you education leaders of color? Man, I'm... uh, So, Mr. Hardy, final thoughts, (laughs) sir? (laughs) (laughs) Nice transition, my friend.
1: (laughs) Well, listen, um, we can talk all day about this stuff and you probably will. (laughs) But the fact is, is that um, radical things? And I say radical. Radical change needs to happen in education. Big, big, bold changes. Different ways of doing things, and holding people accountable when they make these changes, when they spend this money. I mean, you talked about race to the top being four billion. It was seven billion, and they got nothing out of it.
2: Seven billion dollars. Nothing I mean, out of it. You could have given the $7 billion to everybody in that community, and we would have been better. Can you imagine, Mr. Hardy, if we would have given $7 billion to mm-hmm. Black entrepreneurs? How many mm-hmm. jobs we'd have in those communities today? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, they and, would do a better job
1: of that, of managing that money themselves than, than the Race to the Top people did.
2: Because they blew we, it. Race to the Top just fueled the same system And everybody took the money and went back out to their neighborhoods. If you would have Mm -hmm. created entrepreneurs in every single one of those communities, all of those entrepreneurs would be saying to the high schools in those neighborhoods, you know what, you can't be sending me kids that can't do math because I'm hiring these kids. I need them to be able to work this, do this, do that. That's why we desperately need an entrepreneurial class and we need education leaders of colors to be thinking about the fact that we need to be creating future leaders and entrepreneurs. Is it, I'm, oh yeah. the, I'm is off it my soapbox.
0: That's my final okay. Thought.
2: Here's my final thought.
1: <laughs> education is is the only thing in this country that people spend in blindly. People, you know, you wanna raise money for schools, people say oh, we gotta do it. They might not like it, but it's for the schools. We better start figuring out what we're getting for our money. If we don't get value for this educational dollar, you're right, we might as well just give it to the kids as a cash gift. Because right now, we're just holding a jobs program. And that's not working for too many kids.
2: And, where, is, and where, are the, where are the black, where's the black money coming in to help to turn this around? Where is it? That, that, you got some, not enough. You got some, but it's not I mean we had the well, we had Mr. Smith do Morehouse recently, which was fantastic. That was just wonderful. LeBron. LeBron, right. We we have that. there's a, a little bit of it, but the problem is it's a it's it's not concentrated and it's also not focused and it's 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 not organized like other people's money is organized, and it needs to be. Well then Here's our next uh, uh, podcast, Mr. Uh-oh. I, I'm signing up for
0: I'm, this one. I'm writing this down.
1: Why, the, why the teachers union has oversized influence on the Democratic Party that's oh. keeping nothing getting done in black educational communities. Glad to be in that one.
2: <laughs> I, I, I got to step out of that one because that's explosive. <laughs> oh, oh. Wow, they're signing me up. Oh man, I got a target. <laughs> I got a target on my back now. They're signing me up to make it, to make it neon. <laughs> hey,
0: I love call it. it like you say. We got to talk about these things. So, guys, thank you so much for being guests on the Edge of podcast, where we focus on the truth and nothing but the truth. Thank you. Thank you,
2: Mister Ankle.